Uh, our second panel is titled Natural Rights in American Constitutionalism. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our panelists. I also, um, after the panelists speak, uh, Roger Smith, uh, who had wanted to be uh, here with us today, sure, was scheduled to be here with us today. He uh, yeah. uh, had a family uh, situation. He just couldn't travel to South Bend, but he did send some comments. So I will read uh, some comments uh, from Professor Smith after our panelists make their comments. Um, wonderful group of uh, scholars with us, uh, and I'll introduce them uh, in the order in which they'll speak. You guys are hilarious. We were, I was going to use it in the edit program, but that doesn't work. Throw away that tech, <laughs> damn it. Paul Carice is the founding director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. Um, for many years before that, he taught at uh, the Air Force Academy. Speaking next uh, will be Alan Gibson. Alan is a professor of political science at Cal State University Chico. Uh, as I'm sure everyone uh, here knows, he's done extensive research and writing on the founding, uh, author of two books, Interpreting the Founding, A Guide to Passing Your Comprehensive Exams in American <laughs> Thought. <laughs> I kid not, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and uh, what is the title of the second book? I can't remember. Understanding the Founding. Understanding the Founding, yeah. David Nichols, uh, Baylor University. David is the Associate Professor of Political Science. Uh, two terms as a program officer for the National Endowment of the Humanities. A, a wonderful book, as you all know, on executive power in American constitutionalism. And Peter Onuf, uh, University of Virginia, uh, where he's the Thomas Memorial, Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation Professor of History Emeritus. Everyone knows uh, Peter is one of the leading authorities uh, of uh, his generation on Jefferson. Um, again, uh, short comments on the themes of our panel and the themes of Professor Zucker's work, and then we'll open it up for conversation. Paul? Thank you, Phil. And uh, as others have said, thank you for organizing this conference and for choosing such an interesting title for this panel. Um, Philip didn't read the subtitle, which is, Can a Decent Liberal Pol Political Order Be uh, Recovered? So I'm going to address that in part. Um, it's an honor to be here speaking uh, in, in honor of Michael Zuckert and the central themes of his research and his teaching. I should give some background about our school at ASU and its connection uh, with the Zuckerts. Catherine Zuckert w was asked to be on the advisory board of this brand new department on civic and economic thought and leadership, and she has been a very active and valuable member of that academic advisory board. And we enticed Catherine and Michael to come uh, in their retirement for Notre Dame to teach with us. And so they just spent their first spring semester teaching at ASU in our department. And we hope that they will come back uh, for several uh, more years. That is to say, we hope they continue to fail at retiring. <laughs> and we will keep them busy uh, for as long as we can. Um, our school has a, has a big, long name, civic and economic thought and leadership, and we have uh, big ambitions to do our part in reconnecting liberal education and civic education. And it's also an honor to be on this uh, panel with these distinguished scholars. My brief remarks in the spirit of Bill McClay's use of the word provocations are meant to uh, provoke thought and conversation, and um, they are based on the premise that I agree with the subtitle of the panel about the need to recover a decent liberal political order and in the package of the title panel that natural rights and American constitutionalism properly understood are two crucial resources for that recovery. So I propose two 
points. First, that the decline of political science, my own discipline in the past century, is one large cause of the undermining of liberal decency by its undermining of ideas of natural rights and of the genius of American constitutionalism. And my second point, that one large remedy we could consider is the restoration amid this era dominated by extremes and polarization of a philosophical tradition of moderation properly understood. Partly because I need to be provocative while brief and partly because I want to rescue moderation from the perception that it means mushiness or mere centrism, I will be pugnacious in critiquing academia and in proposing a high-minded and tough-minded moderation as a remedy. First, to data indicating our decline and need for recovery. America's constitutional liberal democracy faces a legitimacy crisis and a civic illiteracy crisis. For decades, as we all know, major national surveys on confidence in national institutions and professions have revealed that only the military profession, and now also maybe first responders, regularly receive majority uh, support. Not even the Supreme Court uh, is trusted. There's also a parade, as most of us know, of alarming surveys about civic illiteracy. For example, that a third of citizens cannot name all three branches of the federal government. Indeed, a third of citizens cannot name any of the branches of the federal government. Not to mention, in a recent survey, that 10% of college graduates thought that Judge Judy was a member of the Supreme Court. <laughs> We have defined our degeneracy down, to use Patrick Moynihan's phrase, we have defined our degeneracy down so that we're no longer even alarmed by this kind of news of civic disintegration. Might we be alarmed by the more recent World Values Survey that shows that only one third of millennials, younger uh, citizens, in the major liberal democracies in America and Europe, think it's even essential to live in a democracy? Only one third think it's essential to live in a democracy. This disintegration correlates with the political and social dysfunction we see in America, that our politics now is defined by characters like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, by demagoguery and polarization. While admittedly, such demagogues are responding in part to spiritual and metaphysical crises that manifest in rising rates of family failure, in drug overdoses, in suicides, in loneliness, in stark economic disparities, and especially for the younger generations by the dysfunction of being enslaved to their digital devices. So what's political science got to do with this civic disintegration and this legitimacy crisis? After a century of a new and anti-constitutional and anti-natural rights political science, our discipline, I think, faces a choice. It has to accept some responsibility for causing or failing to ameliorate these crises, or it has to accept its relevance as a practical science for America's constitutional liberal democracy. This is not a happy choice. The general decline that political science has inflicted on itself is narrowness. Partly this is low-mindedness, but even the high-minded in the profession tend toward extreme single-minded moralisms, including the narrow fixation on democracy per se as the only legitimate form of government. I think the political science profession in America, given our current landscape, ought to ask itself whether we have become unwittingly the Dr. Frankenstein, who has experimented 
simultaneously with bold and narrow kinds of thinking, only to see, a century later in our case, a terrible toll on our civic order. Instead, political scientists largely remain proud of our narrowness, gripped with new ideas and with research about progress. We blame the monsters on someone else or on some other causes or forces. I propose that the root causes of both this intellectual narrowness and of the bad practical effects on American liberal decency are twin kinds of illiteracy, metaphysical illiteracy and civic illiteracy. So here I'm, I, Adam Seagrave and I didn't coordinate our remarks, but uh, brilliant minds think alike here. Political science has told us, for, told us for a century that progress will not be fostered by knowing about old-fashioned, out-of-date ideas of natural rights. Thus, we have no time to consider the claims from Aquinas in medieval political philosophy, then developed by the moderate Enlightenment philosophers, that natural right and natural rights have a divine origin. We shouldn't even consider those claims. For a century, we have believed that progress will not be fostered either by knowing about complex constitutional structures to guide and temper a popular politics of liberty and equality. To invoke Lincoln, we might say that this new political science is proud of its ignorance of both the apple of gold and the frame of silver. Political science has had other priorities. But if we look around, as I've just tried to do, at America's formerly constitutional, now only semi-constitutional form of liberal democracy, and we look also at the rise of populist demagogues in other liberal constitutional democracies, we might ask, how is the new political science working out? We have been, to use a metaphor other than the Frankenstein metaphor, we have been deficit spending the intellectual and moral resources of our civic order and institutions, and the bill has now come due. So now from cause to remedy, I propose the need to recover in the American university and particularly in political science, a philosophical tradition of moderation, uh, which I trace to uh, awareness about the tendency of human thought and action to go to extremes. Thus the need to prioritize both an intellectual and political virtue of seeking the higher middle ground. And here I would specifically propose mandatory in-depth study of Montesquieu and Tocqueville in all political science departments. Better in university general edu education requirements. I put aside the matter of compliance. Uh, at the Air Force Academy, I could have fallen back on mandatory push-ups or something like that. Perhaps the more terrifying penalty for this generation of both faculty and students would be confiscation of their digital devices if you failed moderation 101. Montesquieu and Tocqueville are the preeminent philosophers of moderation in modernity, first in the sense of blending or balancing principles. For example, natural rights of individuals with metaphysical religious truths about higher ends of humans. And second, in their awareness of the need to avoid tendencies to extremes in thought. In our day, the zealotry of either rationalism or of religious intolerance. Each in his own way invokes a long complex tradition of intellectual and political moderation, of avoiding extremes and reconciling important principles, each of them drawing on classical and medieval thought. So in my limited time, I want to mention one uh, work that Michael edited toward the end of his career at Notre Dame. It grew out of an earlier conference at Notre Dame, the collection of essays on, on the Tocqueville thesis, the spirit of liberty and the spirit of religion. And I guess to 
share my time with the panelists, I'll finish with this idea of moderation, which Tocqueville uses in defining what he calls the point of departure for his analysis of the Americans and of modern liberal democracy. The point of departure for America itself and the key to almost the whole work, this is in the Mansfield and Winthrop translation. It is a balance or a principle of moderation. That's my way of phrasing it. He says the Americans have succeeded in incorporating somehow into one another and combining marvelously two elements often in conflict in other polities, the spirit of religion and the spirit of liberty. Uh, and if I had more time, I would say that this, this repudiates or provokes an argument with the Deneen thesis that our decline is, is inevitable. It's more uh, a matter of deliberate uh, amnesia. So my second book is Understanding the Founding, A Guide for Launching Your Dissertation. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm honored to be a part of this, uh, this panel and the celebration of Michael Zuckert. He's been a source of edification, uh, inspiration, and friendship now for, I think, 27 years. I remember the first time I met him at a Liberty Fund meeting, um, and I em embarked on an effort to persuade him of my interpretation of Martin Diamond. And I left that conversation thinking I'd convinced uh, probably the most prominent Straussian I'd ever met of that interpretation. Um, I couldn't have been more wrong. <laughs> um, and uh, 27 years later, he still doesn't agree with it. And at some point along the way in thinking about this, I remember thinking to myself, it, it's just not going to happen, Alan. Uh, why are you continuing to, to, to press this? Um, and, and then I came upon the answer in, of all places, the Republic relatively recently. And it was in Glaucon's exchange with Socrates, where, he, where Socrates tells him, advises him, uh, that you want to aim toward the one who knows, not the many who do not. And so often in my intellectual life, Michael Zuckert is the one who knows. And, that's my explanation for that. Um, be, beyond that, so Paul began by, uh, um, by praising the title for this uh, panel. I want to begin by criticizing it. Um, I don't think uh, that our, our quest should be one of restoration, or at least not entirely one of restoration. I think there is a politics of restoration as there is a politics of progressivism. Uh, and so I'm not sure that America has ever achieved, it, it's, I don't want to be flippant here, and I'm not saying that America is not a decent nation, uh, but uh, it has not achieved some of the things that are necessary uh, to meet the full aspirations of the Declaration of Independence. I realize that is a very high bar to set, uh, but it seems to me that we have not. Uh, we have not, uh, over the course of our history, created full inclusion for a large numbers of sections of our, uh, of our population. Uh, that is what living up to the Declaration of Independence means for me in its living understanding. Um, and this also raises the point that liberalism itself has always seemingly been uh, uh, trailed by illiberal ideologies, uh, racism, sexism, uh, nativism, uh, white nationalism, have always come along with liberalism throughout, uh, throughout its history. Uh, either in the people who are presenting these ideas, their own contradictions, uh, the Jefferson problem, or just globally in the, in the beliefs that, and ideologies that circulate in a particular society. 
Um, Roger Smith isn't here. I echo his uh, teachings about this. And I think there's something uh, along the lines of the fact that there are certain things that liberalism can't achieve as an ideology that help explain this. This is the way Rogers has explained it. And I think it's a good explanation, to begin with at least. And that is that um, liberalism asks you to, to think about the proposition that all men are created equal. It asks you to be a rights-bearing citizen, and you're one among many. Uh, these other ideologies tell you that you're special. Uh, they give you a, a sense of belonging into a group that's exclusive. Uh, they tell you that you're going to achieve salvation. Uh, other people may not. And I think that that's a powerful explanation for why these things, these contradictory things, have, uh, have come uh, with each other uh, uh, throughout American history, or in, throughout world history. Um, I also want to echo Paul's uh, sentiments that we are in a real crisis. I, I really take that seriously. I, I don't understand people who don't believe that. Um, we're, we're being very frank today. I don't understand Charles Kessler right now. I don't get it. Uh, I don't think that this is creative destruction, uh, what Trump's doing. I think it is uh, um, possible uh, complete destruction. It scares me uh, to death, to be honest about it. But I, I think in the immediate future, what we have and what is actually ongoing uh, is something more along the lines of what political scientists, especially comparatives, call a transition to a semi-autonomous or semi-authoritarian state. And this, the semi-authoritarian state has this designation of a state that continues to have competitive elections in which basically there's non-interference, or to some degree non-interference, but that authoritarian leaders learn how to manipulate the population in such a way as to ensure their own um, you know, illusion from, um, elusiveness from responsibility to their electorate. I think that in the immediate future is the danger that America faces. Excuse me. And, and I think that is ongoing in the Trump administration uh, by Trump himself and by the acolytes and by his acolytes. So I'm worried about that. When I, uh, it was interesting to hear Paul's list of, uh, of problems with, uh, that we face right now. I have my own. Um, I see at the core of this political uh, polarization um, what is euphemistically called low information voters uh, in the last election, increasing distrust of government, record lows, lows of uh, political uh, efficacy, increasing assaults on government itself, um, on the idea that government can do anything well, on authority uh, in any discipline and reason itself. Um, the very real ways uh, that our political system is in some ways tilted towards certain kinds of outcomes because of what I would consider to be constitutional drift, um, but also um, the threat of legitimacy to the system itself that results from false claims about its biases, declining um, support for democracy generally and freedom of speech, uh, particularly by young Americans, vast and growing uh, inequality, and of course, Donald Trump. Um, so all of, in all of these things, uh, cumulatively and even individually, um, uh, scare me. 
When I think about remedies, uh, I don't have the tight kind of explanation uh, that Paul does for what he wants. I see many of the things that, that I, I won't uh, give you the details for. I'll just say a couple of things about this. Um, involved is simply running these things in reverse and hoping, and that's not uh, very illuminating. So I will say uh, in reference to the uh, to what Paul's doing, at, uh, is, is it Arizona or Arizona State? Arizona, Arizona State. Arizona State, I'm sorry. Um, I don't feel safe anymore. <laughs> it is... Um, uh, it's wonderful. I, I was a, a resident uh, a fellow at the James Madison pro program. It's absolutely wonderful. I'm going to be at the Kinder Institute in Missouri. They're particularly wonderful. They're giving me a year off next year. Uh, they're, they're fabulous. Um, these, are, these are the kinds of institutions, these are the kinds of programs we need to embed inside universities in order to create uh, the constitutional literacy that we now lack, the uh, political literacy that we now lack. So great job. Um, we have to address the problem of economic inequality in America, um, and we need to do so in a way uh, that makes people believe, again, uh, that the rich aren't rich simply because uh, they're insiders, simply because they have some kind of, uh, uh, they've rigged the system, they have some kind of access that others do not. I I'm sorry, but I believe we ought to raise tax rates for the rich, flat out. Um, I think that uh, we also need to prevent the, the, the right from declaring wars against unions, uh, as they've been doing inside states. We need to renew respect for government itself. Uh, I don't believe that it's true that government can't do anything correct, uh, and the idea that that has been, that, I see that as a very ignorant distillation of a conservative message that's come back, uh, down in the last 20 years or so. Um, we're celebrating the 50th year anniversary of the moon launch. That was not a private and it was not a small affair. Uh, it was a government one and it was incredible. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that government can occasionally do. I, uh, I worry a great deal about the, uh, the critique of the, uh, of the deep, uh, deep state. Uh, I think that uh, it has been shown to, uh, that many people who are being thrown under the bus there are, uh, are just lifetime civil servants. Uh, people who go to work who are industrious. Look, I, I work at a state university. I see the problems of, uh, of, of government employment. Uh, every day to some degree, but uh, I also believe that there are people who are doing some really good work there, and I think we have to back off of talking like that. I've critiqued the right, and I, I agree with almost everything that was said on this previous panel with regard to what the left has done and the threat that the left poses to the university system these days with regard to not allowing the truth-seeking section, uh, the truth-seeking um, function uh, of the university. It's only one function the university does, but, but it's an essential fu uh, function. I think it's absolutely imperative, uh, I'll move to the to one punchline as well, uh, that Donald Trump be removed from office. I, I do not think that that uh, should proceed through an impeachment hearing right now, simply for prudential readings, re uh, re reasons, excuse me. But I do think it's essential, and I think the right needs to, to join with the left in voting Donald Trump out of office, and they do need to do so with the consciousness that they're going, their short-term benefits will be less uh, real, but that the, their long-term and most important commitment is to this political system and this constitution. 
uh, and that he is uh, the primary threat to it. I know that there's an awful lot of talk, and I agree with it, that Donald Trump is symptom more than, uh, more than disease, um, uh, that, he, that there's a long history that made it possible for him. Absolutely, totally agree with that. Uh, we can all remember that Donald Trump ran as an insignificant third-party candidate uh, for presidency at one point in his career. Uh, people, very few people even remember that. Uh, everybody thought that was going to be the same thing this time. It turned out not to be the case. Paul has spoken to me in other kinds of, uh, of, of uh, venues, and I thought he was going to mention this today about the problem of the primary system with regard to, uh, and I see that as one of the vehicles for, for leading into office, is that there was never a moment in which a single decision was made between Republican contenders. That it was part of a kind of a general movement, and it was splintered so much uh, across the board that he gained power, <laughs> he gained momentum, and his demagoguery took hold. And so I'm for the reform of the Electoral College, actually, uh, but not, right, not immediately. But I would rather see a reform of the primary system with regard to uh, selecting presidential candidates uh, than the Electoral College. All of this is somewhat a long way away from uh, Michael Zucker's scholarship, and I, and, uh, I think the distinction was made uh, a minute ago between uh, thoughts that have been inspired by Michael's work uh, and his responsibility for them, and I'm sure he'll want to distance himself from some of these comments as well. Um, uh, this always happens to me at these kinds of forums these days. But I think the, the thing that, it, that brings me back to this is this is my answer, actually, to the, uh, the rights infrastructure. These are, this is a part of my answer to the conditions that are necessary for us to, uh, to, to preserve our political institutions right now. Michael talks about the, uh, the rights in, in, infrastructure as the social institutions and the traits of character that make, make rights securing possible. Uh, just to add a little flesh to the rights uh, infrastructure in Michael's work, uh, it is um, contingent. It doesn't stay the same. Uh, it devolves over time. Um, and, so, and he will not spell it out for us. He doesn't give us the rights infrastructure. Uh, I think that that's quite good. He points to it as the negotiated uh, political space uh, in, the, in a kind of interstitial political medium that is necessary in natural rights republics. And I think that that is extremely profound. Um, I'll, I'll finish with one final comment about Michael's work with regard to this. And so, um, you know, the conversations that we'll have or, or have had and, and will continue to have about what the rights infrastructure um, should constitute are one thing. But I also asked myself a question when I engaged in a kind of deep dive into Michael's work a couple of years ago. I was on sabbatical and also had a couple of knee surgeries and the occasion was uh, of sitting and reading was really uh, very available to me. So I read Michael Zucker during that time, okay? A lot of Michael Zucker, uh, okay? And I came out of that incidentally with tremendous respect for obviously for what he does, even more respect than I had before. Michael's got a better interpretation of the Declaration of Independence than Thomas Jefferson does. Um, <laughs> what did he know about it? <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing I, I asked myself, or I, I began to evolve, is uh, to want to think about was. Um, why does Michael Zucker like Locke so much? What's so important and special about Locke uh, that deserves this kind of treatment, this incredibly detailed political history, the, the amount of reading and learning 
in that is just remarkable. So what was it? I came to three answers about that. One of them is, is um, Locke's conservatism, and I don't hear me mean his contemporary conservatism, obviously. I mean his anti-perfectionism. I mean his opposition to trying to ask of a thing that which it cannot give, uh, almost a kind of an Aristotelian dimension of it. I've heard Michael talk about, uh, uh, with equal hands, uh, uh, hippies of the 1960s uh, admonishing them and adventurism in foreign policy by recent conservatives. Um, not, not that recent, but uh, fairly recent. And I think that this is this echoes through in uh, in his understanding of Locke uh, as as taking a political system that doesn't do everything, doesn't try to do everything, but does what it does well. Um, the other part of this, the second part of this, is this idea of natural equality as an animating principle of a uh, uh, and a, uh, a didactic and of uh, 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 one a moralistic principle upon which. There's even a virtually a teleology or a trajectory to American history because of the principle that all men are created equal being put in the Declaration of Independence and being such a, a prominent symbol of what this nation stands for. And then, um, <coughs> excuse me. And then, then finally, um, and, and this is something that Adam Seagrave has written brilliantly on, I think, and that is this idea of um, the Lockean self. Uh, the idea of the consciousness uh, replacing soul, as I understand it, uh, the transition is being made here, and the idea of a life plan and the self as the, the exercise of a reason in a way uh, that Locke has an understanding of reason and Hobbes does not in creating uh, and generating life's life plans for individuals. There's, there's the preservation of a kind of an Aristotelian understanding here uh, and nevertheless a disconnection from teleology here that are both very interesting uh, and, and establish a kind of in-between status uh, for Locke uh, that, uh, that make, that in my opinion, constructively complicate the ancients versus modern distinction. So those are the things that I've learned from Michael Zuckard. But those three things I mentioned also because as we think about the rights infrastructure, I, th I keep those as background principles to inform the specific things that we might do as we move forward to preserve the natural rights republic. Thank you. Um, I was told that we should focus on the topic, recovering a decent liberalism, rather than on Michael's work in order to promote conversation on the topic. I'm going to ignore that advice uh, and instead focus on Michael's work, not in order to provoke conversation, but in order to provoke Michael. <laughs> so uh, the subtitle for my, my talk would be The Three Faces of Michael Zucker. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, seriously, Michael has done more than anyone I know to define the meaning of liberalism and its centrality to the American political project. As so many of you have already pointed out, Michael has shown that modern liberalism represents not a mere evolution, but a major development in the history of political thought. And though many ideas were percolating at the time of the American founding, each of those strains of thought was transcended or transformed in some way by Lockean liberalism. 
Michael has sought not only to explain what liberalism is, but also to so show that it can be a foundation for a decent political order. Again, as it pointed out, in order to do this, he's been willing to engage in a little bit intellectual father beating, taking on his teacher, Leo Strauss, and arguing that Locke broke from Hobbes in one decisive respect, that Locke argued that in addition to the rights, man also had duties in a state of nature. Human beings were not merely selfish, but in some respect, other regarding, recognizing not only their right to property, but also the legitimate right of others. In this sense, Locke launched a liberalism that rested on a natural moral claim that transcended the self-interested calculation of Hobbes. Locke launched the kinder, gentler liberalism that informed the American founding. Having learned all this from Michael, I might have been content to say, of course we can discover recover a decent liberalism. Moreover, to the extent that Lockean liberalism remains alive and well in our politics, we've never really lost it. But I'm not quite content to rest with this image of Michael, the happy warrior, uh, because I think there are other dimensions that at least Michael evokes in me when I am reading him. First of all, Michael is too honest a scholar not to point out the limits of Lockean natural law and its application by Jefferson in American politics. And I'm just going to briefly refer to a couple of Michael's articles that I think touch on this. The first is a 1996 essay on Hobbes, Locke, and the rule of law. And there he argues that although the mere formalism of Hobbes is insufficient to provide legitimacy for the political order, Hobbes is not enough. Uh, the same time, Locke's concept of natural law is also inadequate. Locke insists that the state of nature, the state without positive law, wants an established, settled, known law, received and allowed by common consent to be the standard of right and wrong, the common measure to decide all controversies between them. The law of nature or natural justice does not provide a sufficient rule. Locke in natural law is, in some sense, so in important respects, dependent on Hobbes's formalism. And as another essay explaining Jefferson's weak identification with the idea of moral sense, Mike makes a similar point. He begins by explaining that Jefferson believes that human sociability has a natural base, an imperfect base perhaps, but a base on which the social ligaments other than law backed by force could grow. There was something other than the Leviathan state of pure play of self-interest on which to construct society. It appears to have been his view that a solid legal order built on the recognition and enforcement of natural rights would allow the moral sense to come into its own as a guide to prompt and prompt to moral action. But after granting all of this, Jefferson is clear, Michael says, that the knowledge of rights is the sine qua non of a good society. And as Zucker concludes, there's little in Jefferson's view of a moral sense that is contrary to the rights philosophy of or the selfish system. Jefferson's idea of moral sense is so thinned out that there is no sense of incompatibility or tension at all with the doctrine of rights. Given these formulations, it seems to me the space between Hobbes and Locke appears to be a little less great than we had initially thought. And that in some ways, Michael seems to reconcile a bit with his teacher on the question of the relationship between Hobbes and Locke. We see another dimension of this criticism uh, if we turn to uh, the question of American politics. 
In a talk Michael presented last year on the works of Martin Diamond and Herbert Storing, two teachers we shared, he began by stressing how much Diamond and Storing had done to reinvigorate the study of the founding, how they had worked to create a new old political science that was oriented toward opinion rather than behavior, and one that is normative and evaluative through and through, because normative notions were always a major part of the opinions that political science ought to focus on. But Michael went on to raise serious questions about the viability of Diamond and Storing's project. He argues that in one important respect, their approach to political science and their view of the founding was problematic, because while their work on the founding offers a defense of the Constitution based on modern liberal principles, their political science harkened back to an ancient view of politics. Now, I can't possibly explore Michael's argument in depth here, but on the simplest, argument, on the simplest level, he says that for modern liberals, the dominant fact about American politics is the assumption of equality. But as political scientists trained by Strauss, Diamond and Storing were steeped in a view of human nature and politics that rested on a view of human inequality. Thus, Michael concludes that there was always something problematic about their defense of the American regime. This problem is even more evident in Michael's treatment of the work of Harry Jaffa. Michael argues that Jaffa's first book, uh, portrayed Lincoln uh, as refounding American politics in Aristotelian terms. But eventually Jaffa concluded that this approach was inadequate because it pre presented the American regime as intentions with its origins or its founding. Jaffa's second book, 40 Years Later, A New Birth of Freedom, took a radically different tact. Rather than seeing a need to rescue modern liberal founders in the name of a superior classical view of Aristotle, Jaffa determined that no rescue was necessary. It turns out that Aristotle, Locke, the American founders, and Christianity were always in agreement about the fundamental things, especially about the foundations of the political order and the principle of human equality. I know I haven't done Jaffa's argument justice, but Michael does a much better job of that. But Michael concludes that nonetheless, Jaffa simply ignores too many problems in suggesting such an easy solution. Contrasting Jaffa with Strauss, Michael argues that Strauss was a thinker of dualities, ancients and moderns, Jerusalem and Athens, philosophy and poetry, the city and man. But Jaffa is a thinker of unities. He collapses Athens and Jerusalem, poetry and philosophy, and goes a long way to assimilating Strauss's ancients and moderns. Zucker concludes that the unity created by Jaffa destroys the integrity of the very parts he seeks to reconcile. Thus, Michael seems, in the end, to give, at best, two cheers for modern liberalism. Like Diamond, Storing, and Strauss, he does seem to think that it misses something important about human nature and the nature of politics. It cuts us off from a more complete account of human life. Although I think he still concludes that the cost of modern liberalism are a fair price to pay for its benefits, nonetheless, I think Michael's work, despite his best efforts, induces in us a nagging doubt about the limits of modern liberalism. Now, for the third phase, although Michael has been very mindful of the difficulties of any attempt to bring a more complete view of human nature into liberal politics, in reviewing Michael's work, I find this a third dimension. He, too, has made some interesting forays into the question of what liberalism might learn from its predecessors. 
And here I will mention two other articles I think raise some particularly interesting ideas. The first, maybe oddly enough, reflecting Jaffa, is an essay on Lincoln's political theology titled Providentialism in Politics, Lincoln's Second Inaugural Address and a Problem with Democracy. Michael argues that in the Second Inaugural, Lincoln creates a mature political theology. He sought to use political theology to construct a public philosophy that could not only undergird his sought-after policy of reconstruction, but also support a broad, healthy, democratic politics by countering the three main pathologies to which democracy and the doctrine of popular sovereignty can lead. I'm quoting Michael here. First, his affirmation of divine governance of history counters the temptation to embrace the idea that human moral sovereignty and self-sufficiency, that is the idea that human will is the only source of value. Second, the idea of a, quote, through the glass darkly providentialism is also meant to guard against what Machiavelli called pious cruelty. That is, an indulgence in a kind of harsh and repressive politics based on the firm confidence that one is doing God's work. Finally, the idea that we must firmly persevere in and pursue right as God gives us to see it, as we see it. It's meant to counter the tendency, this third point, toward the passivity posed by the other two aspects of Lincoln's political theology. By giving us the ability to see right, to have standards of right as a basis and mandate for action, God indicates that the proper human stance is not passive obeisance to history, but a free, yet not sovereign, stand within history. Michael says that this is in many ways a beautiful doctrine, and one that it merits, one of its merits is that it speaks in one aspect or another to the great dangers Lincoln saw in the modern democratic experience. But offering some hope for this elevation and moderation of politics, Michael says that the most important lesson we learned from Lincoln here is that he failed. He failed to use this speech to guide the policy of Reconstruction, and he failed to have any lasting influence on American political rhetoric. I'm not quite so pessimistic as Michael, because it's not clear to me that because he failed in this respect that we need to reject either his arguments or his projects. The second article is titled, The Fullness of Being, Thomas Aquinas and the Modern Critique of Natural Law. This is a remarkable piece because I think it shows that even such a staunch defender of modern liberalism as Michael can show a great deal of sympathy for the devil, in this case, the devil being Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> right. Locke says that nature cannot be known from the natural inclination of man. But Michael suggests that Aquinas offers at least a plausible response. Again, there's not enough time to lay out Michael's argument. Let me just mention a few points. Unlike Locke, Aquinas refuses, Michael says, uh, to reduce human beings to their mere desires. Human beings distinguish between what they do and what they think they ought to do. And this is not necessarily relying on the notion of teleology. It is an empirical observation. Aquinas also recognizes that people can be wrong about their notion of the good. But that does not mean that the good does not exist. The good is that which maintains its integrity over time. Indeed, all inquiry must begin with the idea of the good, or as Michael puts it, the idea of being itself. 
This is the starting point for all arguments. We constantly refer to or understand being as if we knew what we were talking about, as if it were something. And finally, Aquinas thinks that subordinate goods must be understood in light of a more comprehensive understanding of the good. Michael points out that even Locke must find a way to order goods to have an idea of natural law. But beginning with the notion that all goods are subjective undermines any such ordering. Thomas Aquinas might, in fact, have a more consistent theory than John Locke. I do not mean to suggest that Michael suddenly became a Thomist. <laughs> Michael argues that Aquinas' project is ultimately tied to the desire to know the most comprehensive good, to know God. I don't think Michael's prepared to make that leap of faith. But Michael ends with a question, not a conclusion, a question as to whether Locke is clearly superior to Aquinas in providing an adequate foundation for natural law. I do not expect miracles such as Michael's Thomistic conversion. But Michael's writings do encourage me to think that there is some hope for a decent liberalism to survive, perhaps more hope than Michael has expressed that modern liberalism does not represent an insuperable bar to a more robust idea of human nature and politics. I will conclude, as Michael himself once wrote in response to Alan Bloom's despair about the current generation, I do not see young people, Michael said, my children's generation forgetting how to love, no longer caring for children, disinterested in the life of the mind, indifferent to beauty. Bloom began his section on students by admitting he'd been wrong about nature and convention. I am suggesting that he remained wrong because he became more wrong. For I think, Michael says, he has too little faith in nature. He's too quick to confuse changes in convention with the loss of nature. We would be forced to be naive and optimists about family and education and many other things of the time. But we also must remember that nature is nature. So I'd end with a few propositions that might give us some hope. Nature may still provide, for Michael and for us, a basis on which to question the dogmas of a relative modern rationalism. Liberal rationalism is not the only way to explain or to understand a liberal political order. The very openness of liberalism, political openness of liberalism undercuts dogmatic epistemological assumptions that may have accompanied the rise of liberal thought. And although we should not seek to reduce all conflicting strains of political thought into some artificial or mythical unity, the inability to do so should not lead to the opposite conclusion that all these dualities, ancient, modern, Jerusalem, Athens, poetry, and philosophy, are so hostile to each other that we are forced to choose one side or the other. Perhaps human beings are more complicated and can handle some healthy tension in their lives and in their thought. Moreover, human beings should recognize they're not gods. They're not pure minds and therefore see that the attempt to find such purity is in some fundamental sense misguided. These propositions provide a recipe for recovering or discovering a decent liberalism. It's a great honor to be here to talk about the state we're in these days through the lens of Michael Zuckert's wonderful work. Uh, I loved Paul's uh, apology for the entire last century of political science. <laughs> uh, I'm inspired to offer 
a much less grandiose apology for historians who are implicated in the state of modern knowledge and understanding. And specifically for, I think, the biggest problem among my colleagues, but one that we're struggling against, which is the fallacy of history as progress, that progress is imminent in history. Clearly, we need to get over that. There is no teleologic to history. It only goes where we take it, and we don't know where we're taking it. But that's our challenge. I think events like this are, are good to reassure us that we are among like-minded people. And while we're complaining about the therapeutic needs of our students, let's acknowledge that this is a therapeutic session for us. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good, and uh, <laughs> well, nature is an interesting word. I, Paul complained about the narrowness of political science, but acknowledged, but there are broad thinkers, and I'm sitting between a couple of them, and I'm not going to mediate. They'll have to deal with each other. It's amazing how they can sustain a conversation with all these dead, well, white guys. And uh, it's an interesting and important conversation. It's one of the reasons uh, that life is worth living. It's terrific. Let me offer a modest sort of uh, approach to our problems based on my modest knowledge as an historian. The redeeming virtue of historians is we really don't know very much, but we know, and we think we know, and we have working premises about what constitutes workable facts and hypotheses on a very minor scale. This is, I think, redemptive because we never get, and we resist, and that's why my point about progressive history, we need to resist the idea that we are simply narrating the progress of history. It's important to remember that professional history comes out of nation making in the early modern world. And it's all about legitimating nations. So not surprisingly, there is a celebratory exceptionalist bias to all national histories. But we have a set of practices and a way of approaching the past that I, I think can get us beyond the fallacies of imagining that we know the direction of history. If anything is clear in the last generation, it's that the progressive promise the collective American dream is not working out. It's not just that we need to challenge the state and all its deep and bad doings. Of course, lefties in the 1960s can claim some responsibility for that first great assault on the state. But it's been a universal assault on authority in which right and left have joined together. Well, here's my very modest narrative I want to offer. What I see happening now is a coming back to the conditions under which people like us struggled to overthrow the old regime. I see something like a new old regime, but we're not paying attention to it, or we're beginning to pay attention to it, but not in useful ways yet. I think what Michael has to teach us about constitutionalism is central to a process of getting right with the world as we understand it. The very modest notion, I think, that 
there is a way of bridging the tension between what is given in the way the world we are born into is constituted and a conception of constitution that is descriptive about that world and that seems to be given something that we couldn't possibly on our own or even in combination with others do very much about. And then that wonderful moment in the early modern world when people like the American founders imagined that they could make a world and could frame a government that is a constitution in a new sense of the word, something that is the product of intention and design with an awareness of what the conditions of freedom are and must be to sustain this project. The tension between the given and the constructed, what we could do as agents in history, the bridge between that in Michael's work, I think, is a robust, capacious conception of nature. An idea of nature that begins in our self-consciousness, self-recognition, self-possession, or aspirations to possess ourselves to become citizens, and therefore to do something about the world that we live in. Of course, the expectations of the founders would be dashed, the union would collapse. In many ways, the founding is a failure. Yet at the same time, I think we can see that the spirit, to use a favorite term among my theoretical friends, the spirit that animated the founders is one that resonates with us a modest conception of who we are, of what a self is, understanding that it is only meaningful within a civil social context. In fact, the very idea of self-fashioning is a product of a new conception of society in which we can all figure in some modest way. This idea that nature is something through self-examination, we can understand in a way how we need to be in order to survive as the people we imagine ourselves to be. Now, what I want to say is I don't know what nature is. We historians don't answer those questions. I'll leave it to you theorists. But I will say that we are a moment in world history, as I think we're all beginning to see it, in which we can justifiably, understandably, be nostalgic for the world encountered by opponents of the old regime by small r Republicans, by people who came to call themselves Democrats, by liberals, people who imagined that individuals can count. But they can't count for everything. They're not gods. That's an important theme of what we've been talking about. I like the way that Adam was talking about foci and, and uh, centers. I'm all important in my world, but my world is a very, very small one. And I recognize humbly that I don't account for much. And it's that knowledge that makes me happy about being an old person and being a nearly dead white guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I do believe, however, and I think most of you feel this, I hope you feel this with your students now, it's been six years since I've taught undergraduates, but they always kept surprising me, even my cranky old age. I think there is a source of renewal there. I think they do recognize the things that matter to us. That is, that 
perpetuating that sense of self. I think the disillusionment of the techies in Silicon Valley with devices for their own kids is illuminating. And I think there's a lot of new understanding and knowledge emerging about among our young people about the big challenges of the future, which have to do with whether or not there will be selves in the future. I think they get this. Here's my brief view, and I'll offer it as an historian with very little authority. When I said we're facing the new old regime, I mean the growing inequality that Alan talked about. I mean the emergence of uh, uh, dynastic impulses that are very powerful associated with that new inequality so that we are, have a very attenuated sense of a collective or public good. And much of that attenuated sense is instead invested in what we now call tribalism, or kind of a new corporatism, which in its own uncanny way resonates with the corporatism of the old regime. What we're lacking, and it seemed to be lacking, is the framework within which the kind of self that Michael's talking about is meaningful, is a focus and not a center. I think the great challenge is to recover, before it's too late, a sense of self that does define, in many ways, modernity. I'm not going to go back to the ancients. I see with Michael, at least when he's a Lockean, that there's a moment in Western history and then in world history in which the idea of the importance of the individual takes on a new cast within the context of global markets, within all the regimes that emerge to define modernity. Those are at risk, and they're at risk from in two directions, and this is what I want to conclude with. In one direction, it's familiar from our complaints during this therapy session uh, about the new regime of privilege. It's interesting that rights talk may be diminishing, and there certainly is an emergence of privilege talk, usually in a pejorative sense. It's about other people claiming privilege. Or what it amounts to is groups feeling vulnerable, marginal, and endangered or oppressed to claim a new kind of privilege because of their condition. Why not talk about rights? What's all this talk about privilege? And privilege, of course, taken to its extreme, and this is what we revolutionaries worried about in the 18th century, privilege taken to extreme means that the few will prosper and thrive at the expense of the rest of us. That's the short version of privilege. So on the one hand, we have the problem of what happens to this sense of self that's been derailed, to use that nice image of the roller coaster, or, uh, coaster, or maybe derailed, taking us off our tracks completely, where the conditions, the infrastructure of rights and modern selfhood doesn't exist anymore. Well, the other danger, that danger on the one hand of the self-indulgent, self-obsessed, narcissistic, mediated individual, is the possible and terminal displacement of self in a mediated world in which we find other ways to get work done when it's not even important 
that people be consumers. In fact, hold on to your consumerism because it's your last claim on selfhood. Everything else is completely attenuated and at risk. And the self who exists as a customer, well, he, he or she exists as long as it's worth it for those who construct us. In this era in which we recognize social construction, imagine this, we are being constructed and the very idea of the individual, consenting individual, self-reflective individual in, in touch with his or her own nature is at risk. Are we nothing but, we like to think a bundle of rights is a nice explanation of property. Are we nothing but a bundle of consumer tendencies that can be monetized? Do we even exist anymore? I think there is this profound existential threat that the modern idea of the self, which still resonates with us post-lock, partly thanks to Michael Zuckert, that that sense of self is at risk. Now, I don't want to end on a gloomy note because I told you I was happy about being nearly dead. <laughs> of course, I'll always have misgivings about being white, but there you have it. I do, I do think there's hope, and I think it's a civic hope, and I love the word decency, and it has to do with not setting a high bar, but moving modestly in the here and now to do what we can do because the world belongs to the living, as my man said right now, and we are, and I even acknowledge it in my own case, I'm still living. <laughs> Is it too late to worry about those who come next? Have we failed the rising generation? Will that generation even be rising under the conditions that we have constructed for them? That's a good question, but that public good, higher education, education, that very opportunity to become somebody we would recognize as a self who wants to live in a democratic society. Let's not complain about, and go ahead and complain about postmodernism if it makes you feel better, but this is all epiphenomenal. What's really at risk here is any sense of the public good, of a rights infrastructure, of a constitution, of a system of governance, of a system of providing for the welfare of our fellow people on this planet, in this case, fellow Americans. Well, I think we can do better. We can't reverse the directions that we're all bemoaning now instantly. We don't matter that much. But maybe we could demonstrate to our children that we're aware that we're implicated in the world that they inherit. Jefferson said that the earth belongs in usufruct, that is, in trust to the living. What have we done with that trust? Uh, so let's not blame the victims, because I think everybody in this late modern world is in the status of endangered victim. Let's imagine what we can do collectively to not restore a wonderful time at the beginning of modernity, but to remember that there was a notion of human nature, and whether this goes back to the ancients or not, I will leave up to you political philosophers. We need to sustain that conception of the self and the opportunities that that self has to matter 
in their own history in a world that still exists, a world that they can continue to make and remake that doesn't make and unmake them. As I uh, mentioned at the outset, Roger Smith uh, uh, was invited and was looking forward to participating. Um, I'll just read his, his remarks. I, I suspect he would uh, start something like this. Maybe this is me. Just as, a, as a member of the Generation X, I appreciated that self-flagellation of the baby boomer generation. <laughs> Roger writes, um, uh, I am deeply saddened that uh, family matter has arisen that prevents me from participating on the panel Natural Rights and American Constitutionalism. But I'm grateful again to have the opportunity to send along some thoughts, and I hope I, that can be shared with the conference participants as well as Michael. Fortunately, as part of a recent American Political Thought Symposium in honor of Michael, I published an essay that would have been the basis of my remarks today. There I note that Michael and I have long agreed that at its best, American constitutionalism builds on the Locke-influenced republicanism of the founding generation, and particularly the understanding of the American Republic. I'm sorry, and particularly the understanding that the American Republic should be dedicated to the project of securing, over time, the basic rights of the Declaration of Independence for all people, of all colors, everywhere, as Lincoln put it. We have disagreed slightly on just how dominant that tradition was in, our found, in the founding era, but we have agreed, agreed that it is extended, deepened, and still more form, firmly enshrined in the Constitution by so, post-Civil War amendments. I am also a bit more skeptical than Michael of the Lockean conception of natural rights that many shared at the nation's outset, and somewhat more persuaded by the pragmatists' later questioning of these doctrines. But here again, uh, our differences are slight because Michael understands Locke to rest those natural rights on the perceptible characteristics of human consciousness rather than any secret hidden, any secret hidden in the bowels of the universe. I base my own pragmatist commitment to the Declaration of Independence's project on roughly the same basis. For the purposes of answering the question posed to the panel, our minor historical and philosophical differences pale in comparison to what I think is our strong shared belief that an America that is just, that is just about self-serving American nationalism, an America that is dedicated to America first and little more, falls far short of what the American liberal republic should be. I think we both believe that the nation can and should recover a sense of dedication to the project of the democratic prudential and inevitably long-term pursuit of finding public and private policies and practices that can increasingly extend meaningful enjoyment of the Declaration of Independence rights to all. This is a vision of a decent liberal political order that can provide a basis for meaning meaningful unity. It is a collective project to which we can all contribute and in which we can all take pride. And also a basis for extensive, if ultimately bounded, diversity because the Declaration of Independence rights include rights to pursue happiness, and people's conception of happiness, uh, happiness le legitimately differ. Our common effort should be to accommodate as many diverse pursuits of happiness as we can, and to limit freedom only when clashes are so severe between a slave society and a free society that no accommodation that can be justified can long endure. 
I would have argued that this general sense of shared commitment to the Declaration of Independence project represents both a recovery of a decent little liberal order and a guide to how to extend it successfully in our time. But these remarks from an absentee panelist are already taking up too much time, so I will go on to some personal notes. I've known Michael since the early 1980s when he faced professional and political challenges posed by having been trained in part by, student, by students and supporters of Leo Strauss, then more controversial than today, and by having become active in the Minnesota Republican Party, then less controversial than today. <laughs> From our first conversation, the first of many, and many venues over many years, I was struck by the truly remarkable intellectual integrity and personal decency of this man. He had some views that differed from mine, and we argued them at times intensely. But Michael never did so in a manner that suggested he was trying to win points for his side. I sometimes did. <laughs> it was always clear that he was really trying to get to what was right and true. If that required him to challenge the views of some of his teachers, he was always willing to do so, in person and in print, even if there were professional costs. Similarly, when he was passionately committed to the kind of Lincoln Republicanism that his understanding of American constitutionalism supports, he proved willing over the years to break, break with the Republican Party when he, saw, when he saw it breaking with that sense of American purpose and value, particularly when the Bush administration launched the Iraq War. Again, these decisions must have come at some personal cost, but if so, Michael paid them. Was he always right on these intellectual and political issues? Probably not. None of us are. But uh, as I've indicated, my own intellectual differences with him are slight, in part because I have learned so much from him. And if the Republican Party of today was a, the Republican Party of Michael Zucker, I would wholeheartedly, I wholeheartedly uh, would be a part of it. When we became the founding editor, when he became the founding editor of American Political Thought, moreover, Michael gave it both a distinctive focus, it has consistently published more extensive and deeper reflections on fundamental, on fundamental American political principles than any other academic journal, and also a rare breath. Michael has been open to contributions on American arts, literature, and culture, as well as American constitutional institutions, to scholars from history and philosophy and literature and communications and more, as well as political science. To be frank, he has created the only academic journal that I really love to read. I trust his talented successors, inspired by his example, will carry those achievements forward. I could close by reminding you all again of Michael's prolific scholarly achievements, but let me instead end with a story that to me is even more revealing. Michael and I have several times participated in a Jack Miller Summer Institute sessions for young, scholar, young scholars. The truth is I really work on these presentations, partly because I know not just younger scholars, but people like Michael will be there, and I'm vain. <laughs> <laughs> but when it came to Michael's turn at a recent session, he said he wasn't going to give a presentation. He was going to lead a discussion. He was choosing to teach, not to preach. And he led a discussion, which proved to be carefully structured, that was the most stimulating and informative of those sessions that I've ever attended. In doing so, I realized he was teaching those young scholars and also still teaching me the way to be the best kind of professor of political science and the best kind of intellectual 
the kind that is also a model for the best kind of critically but sympathetically engaged citizenship. That is who Michael Zucker is. My thanks to all of you to listening to these remarks. And Michael, thanks so much for that lesson and for so much more. We open uh, open the floor. Oh, Michael, maybe we'll, you'll yeah, comment. Let me yourself. when you um, uh, ask questions or make comments, please introduce yourselves. I know most of us know one another here, but for those who will watch the video later, it'll be helpful uh, if you introduce yourself. Right. Well, actually, you know, the only thing that strikes me as addressable in this context, <laughs> I mean, that's to say, a, a focused a focused presentation that really called on me to say something pretty much specific. I mean, I will say to Paul, uh, I mean, now not that I think of it, I have a few more things to say. <laughs> uh, I don't feel safe. Montesquieu is not the answer to every question. And that he would be deepened by, for example, uh, uh, bringing him more into touch with some of the other early modern philosophers. So I, I'll, I'll, to my, new, my, my current boss, uh, I'll say that to him. Um, but I was uh, struck by uh, I was struck by everybody's comments. I assure you, but I was struck by David's challenges to his attempt to provoke me, which were I thought remarkably uh, thorough and well thought out and challenging, just as he <laughs> meant them to be. Um, but I think it would take like the rest of three weeks uh, to begin <laughs> to respond to some, to what he said. <laughs> So I'm going to um, I'm going to pass on that as an effort as an overall effort. I just don't feel up to it, um, but I do appreciate I do appreciate that you uh, dug through all that stuff, quoted all those quotes. Uh, most of the good ones, by the way, came from Lincoln. So, <laughs> uh, so let me leave that. But if you, there are some more specific things that come up, maybe I'd, I'd give a hand at that. I realize this is. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, hi. Uh, I'm I'm David Schaefer from Holy Cross College in Massachusetts. Um, um, I realize this is not the forum really for political debate, but as is my want on this occasion, I cannot leave unchallenged the claim that America suffers from uh, a dynastic privilege, if by that is meant an economic dynasty, nor that it suffers from a problem of economic inequality. Uh, it does suffer, as we all know, not only from the sort of civic and moral problems that Paul and I think Adam Seagrave have touched on, uh, but it also certainly suffers from a, a poverty problem, the problem of an underclass, uh, the causes of which are not, however, the enormous salaries earned by CEOs and baseball stars and uh, rock musicians, but rather a whole set of social pathologies that I think everybody is aware of that range from illegitimacy to lousy public schools operated by teachers unions um, to, um, uh, I, I won't go through the rest, the high crime problems in uh, minority neighborhoods about which my son-in-law uh, speaks and writes frequently. Um, 
But um, to allege that the poverty is caused by the wealth is simply empirically inaccurate. The University of Chicago, excuse me, University of Michigan income dynamics surveys that are done each decade. Uh, the work of uh, the economist Thomas Sowell, a uh, recent book by the Canadian economist William Watson, The Inequality Trap, uh, subtitle of which is uh, Fight Poverty, Not Inequality, uh, simply belies the claim that the wealth of CEOs, baseball stars, and rock musicians, God help us, um, causes other people to be unable to rise out of poverty. If that were the case, then the desperate attempt of hundreds of thousands of mostly poor immigrants to make it into this country, mostly illegally, would be inexplicable. Are they really so foolish as to want to escape democratic El Salvador or China to endure the oppression of dynasty in this country? Uh, and so uh, I, I really needed to call into question the claim that um, the wealth, and fabulous to most of us, academics of the highest CEOs, hedge fund managers, or baseball stars in any, in any way causes anybody to be poor. Let's, let's get another, uh, or let's get a question. Um, Brennan Dunn. Um, liberalism is a big problem to fix, right? If we have, if the, the problem with our contemporary political culture is that liberalism from its origins is inherently problematic, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult thing to navigate around. I guess my question is, could it be something smaller um, than that? And I think looking back at American history, I think it's easy to say that um, we're in a unique spot, right? Our political and social upheaval um, is somehow unique today, but obviously you have the, um, the, Republic, the Republican Party and the Federalists, you have the Jacksonian era, the pre-Civil War era, Reconstruction era, populism and socialism, civil rights, Vietnam. I mean, the, and, 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 and I think it's easy to kind of forget just in recent history the, the kind of reaction to the Bush administration. Um, and so I think that it's striking how much political and social unrest um, there has been throughout American political history. It's not everything was great and there was a civil war and then everything was great again. Um, I think we're very much defined by our, um, these periods of incredible um, social unrest and, and violence, political violence. Um, so in that respect, things don't look so bad today. Um, at the same time, I think there's a sense that it's worse, um, that we're in, in this unique moment. So I'm wondering if, if is, is, it, is it so much that liberalism is driving, you know, to the extent that it is, is liberalism driving the acceleration of our political unrest today? Or could it be, you know, the breakdown of Congress as a governing institution, the rise of the administrative state? the Supreme Court taking on more and more authority over the course of the last 60 years. Um, 
executive power, um, the media. I, 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 so I guess that's my question: is are we, are we, is it possible to focus on other institutional developments that have really accelerated in the post World War II era that are driving kind of that the end the the reason we're in our current spot is not because of something that went wrong at the founding, but it's really a, a number of institutional changes that have evolved over the last 70 years. Good comment. Uh, short responses? Well, I mean, I, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that analysis. Uh, uh, it isn't all just, I mean, like the Patrick Deneen book, which says America was doomed from the you know, 1776 or 1763 or whatever year he actually has in mind. 1689. Uh, <laughs> 17 what? 1689. Oh, 89. Oh, it's a Yeah. Well, whatever. Whatever. I mean, that's 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 not the right story. We we can sort of feel that intuitively, um, but there are, there are a lot of I say mid-level causes that are that are responsible for a lot of what we have. I mean, one of them that strikes me particularly is we're now having a big debate about various things that uh, Donald Trump has done, including things like declaring emergencies on his own authority um, and relocating military troops on that authority, um, declaring trade wars by slapping tariffs on this, that, and the other. And we can name a lot of other things like that. And everybody complains about him doing all these things. And then we ask, well, we don't ask, actually, where does Trump get the authority to do this? Answer, congressional legislation authorized him to do this. And so you have to say, well, uh, maybe we can blame Donald Trump a bit, but I would actually blame those people who put these powers into his, into any president. I mean, not just Donald Trump, into any president's hands. I mean, somebody somewhere forgot what a democratic republic is. Insufficient attention to Montesquieu. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, was this microphone on? I didn't know it was on. So I, my remarks were cut short because I, I wanted to limit um, my time, but I meant to be, I, I appreciate the remark about too much fixation, immoderate attention to Montesquieu, but I meant, I meant to be suggesting that Tocqueville's political science, his new political science, is uh, a blend of Montesquieu and the experience of the American Founder, so it's a version of your amalgam thesis about the American founding, Michael. Yes. So, I, and, but Michael's must, you know, this point is that um, a, a new political science tried to replace <laughs> the political science that Tocqueville appreciated and, and called for as a new political science. And so we, we, we would now want to fix the problem of Donald Trump by replacing him with a megalomaniac Bernie Sanders or somebody else from the left. Is, is this a solution? So to, to go back to recover more, more moderate and balanced ideas of what a self-governing constitutional democratic Republican is rather than have a replacement in, in a spirit of vengeance, a replacement for, for Trump. Actually, I, I, I should, it, my comment to Paul was actually taken out of context. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was taken out of context by me. Um, <laughs> Which is, uh, I was once on a panel uh, at one of the conventions, and uh, somebody in the audience stood up and made a comment, or, or made a comment, or allegedly raised the question, and the 
the, he went on for a very long time, and at the end of it, nobody could quite figure out what he was asking. And on that panel was uh, another Montesquieu, um, I would say fanatic, but no, I don't want in this context, <laughs> but another Montesquieu fan, which there are many, and deservedly so, um, Diana Schaub. And uh, Diana stood up there and says, well, That's right. I don't know what the question was, but the answer is Montesquieu. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> but the, about that question, if you think about the maladies that you listed, Tocqueville anticipates quite a few of those. Why would we concentrate power in certain ways, but also have a kind of populism in parallel with it, and, and losing a, cent, a, a, a middle, moderate, reasonable, complicated view of, of liberal democratic self-government? A comment to reinforce the last question. There have been upheavals about every 25 years, 24 years. Uh, Jefferson would love this. (laughs) Uh, But if you think about it, uh, 1776, 1800, 1824, 28, uh, 1852, you begin to get the collapse of the political parties, 1876, the end of Reconstruction. uh, the the um, uh, what is it uh, 1896 uh, with with the transformation of the Democratic Party under the populist wing uh, 1920 return to normalcy 1944 the Republicans win elect win an election 1968 I covered uh, George Wallace's campaign in Oklahoma he won the Michigan Democratic primary we should not forget that that that's really a Ross Perot in, what's it, 1992, and then Donald Trump, uh, which doesn't mean there isn't something special about this situation, but there have been lots of upheavals, and they seem to come about once a generation. So a a little bit of moderation about our fears. Uh, But I have a question. None of you mention the world perspective, and what is really striking about what's going on right now is the collapse of political parties in most of the Western democracies. Uh, the, the, the sort of two-party system that was dominant in Germany, who knows what's coming? Right. The, both, both the socialists and the Christian Democrats seem to be in free fall. Macron comes out of nowhere in France as a non-party guy, uh, rejecting the Gaullists and the socialists and becomes president. Uh, you get a hostile takeover of the Labour Party in Britain, and now a splintering of the Tory Party. And of course, in our last election, if there hadn't been, if it really been done by the primaries in the Democratic Party, a non-member of the Democratic Party would have been the nominee, Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 Donald Trump's nomination was a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. Uh, if you look at it. Globally, you might get a somewhat different picture uh, about a world in which the political parties everywhere that have been the dominant political parties seem to be falling apart uh, because somehow uh, the needs of the countries of the countries are no longer quite met by these old political parties. Well, I'll briefly answer. You're exactly right with trying to dial down our sense of alarm in American history. 
And that is, yeah, we've had recurrent crises, and we like to think there's always a in response to or as a, in the consequence of these moments that there is a, a, a renewal in some way that we can always invoke the Constitution, that there are, however poorly understood or defined, a, a set of premises about who we are and what our rights are. And that has uh, gotten us through a lot of rough patches. But then you raise the alarm by setting it in a global context, and quite appropriately, we're now talking about how you do democracy, the political culture and the institutions uh, in all of the Western democracies. And it is a, an important point to keep in mind uh, because we are not all that different from these other places. There are, in other words, things that we share this moment of disillusionment with the traditional way of doing politics with political parties. And that's something that political scientists ought to be talking about and helping us with because uh, we historians are, have, of course, been narrowly focused. And uh, I think that's part, actually, of a, a new awareness that the old way of telling the story that is a national story is insufficient for the nation at this moment in the history of the world. So there's a lot to worry about, but let's worry about the right things. But let's take the steps right now. And it seems to me that at least in the short term, Paul, I hope this is true, there's enough of a reaction against the abuses of the constitutional law that there'll be some kind of correction. But I think it would be a mistake to think that that's going to be a full correction and that the damage can be undone. I think damage is being done all over the world, and we don't know what's coming next. And the reason I raise the alarm it has to do with the, the possibility of regimes such as previewed in Western China now of a surveillance state that suggests, and now they're out there selling this. To, you've read about Ecuador. They, they just bought the whole package of the software so that they can have a surveillance society too. And what's your answer to that? Australia also. Yeah, onward and downward. I just want to say a word, uh, Paul, too. I, this is probably somewhat unfair, but it, it is almost like you're saying, well, the world's burning down. Don't worry if your house is. Uh, I, I think there's some, uh, you know, some tension there. I, uh, um, I see, you know, the, the, authoritarian, the rise of authoritarian governments across the world in, in a populist mode as, uh, as a development, as a real threat to democracy. I, I, don't, I think this is the first time in my consciousness I can just remember democracy being put on the defensive. Uh, for my whole lifetime, I've, uh, I've seen democracy as somewhat inevitable, and I realize all the teleology that, that, goes, mm -hmm. that goes with that. Mm -hmm. but, and, it, and I realize it's naive, uh, how naive it was to believe that. But it seems to me that uh, people across the world are saying, you know, can, should I choose democracy? If I have to choose between democracy and material well-being, for example, uh, I'll choose material well-being. Uh, I don't necessarily need self-government. One of the interesting things about Michael's work, I think, is the relationship he draws for Jefferson between self-ownership and self-government. Uh, Jefferson is, in Michael's narrative, the, uh, the, the founder who, uh, who makes the transition that uh, republicanism is the only kind of form of government that can deliver liberalism. And the, uh, um, the way that that's set up, and I hope I'm not mischaracterizing anything you've said here, is that you know, individual self-ownership then gets projected into public ownership of government. 
holding it accountable in, in that way. And I see that as, um, as something that's being lost right now uh, in the world, the necessity of being able to hold leaders accountable, the, the, the vitality of that conception. Um, we don't need to lose that. Uh, to be fair, in the pre, in the depression era, there was a worldwide concern about uh, corporatism, fascism, and it can't happen here, as Sinclair Lewis rhetorically put it, meaning it could. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I would like to insist on the global dimension of the crisis. I think that despite the fact that, of course, there have been crises of democracy long before in American and other um, countries' histories, there are three factors that make the actual situation quite frightening. The first is that the spiritual foundations that a republic presupposes are eroding everywhere. They presuppose, for example, the idea of a common good as Paul was saying. They presuppose the intelligibility of the common good. All social constructivism and postmodernism has taught us that there is no way of knowing objective norms. Everything is subjective, and when we see that people become algorithm, uh, automats that have to be manipulated by algorithms because there is no truth that we are uh, um, uh, looking at, but only memes that have to become successful in the political game. The second factor is indeed the phenomenon is not limited to Europe uh, or to the United States. It's a general phenomenon, and probably historians will once say that from 1991 to 2016, we had a golden quarter of century where the hopes of globalism and liberalization uh, and liberalism seemed to become um, uh, um, rampant. And in 2016, something's happened everywhere. And for me, the first alarming sign before the election of President Trump was the election of President Duterte in the Philippines. I do not know uh, um, a, a Filipino, but I can read in English the discourses that this man gave in the campaign before he was elected. In one discourse, he says, when I'm president, every day I will pardon hundreds of people who, uh, from the police and the armed forces who violate so-called human rights and kill other people. And then he said, when I'm president, with my own hands, I will kill a lot of people. And then I will pardon myself, because my interpretation of the Filipino constitution is that the right of pardoning of a president includes everything that he himself does. For to celebrate his 100th in office, President Trump congratulated Duterte on the fantastic job that he's doing, and he developed similar ideas about the right of a president um, uh, um, uh, to pardon. And the third thing that makes the situation so worrisome is that, of course, the international arena is changing very, very quickly. And often, when we see changes of this magnitude, wars are on the lookout. And wars are always a way for dictators to try to stabilize their power. And so the combination of a lack and erosion of spiritual aspects of a universal spread of anti-liberal so-called democratic populism and the international chaos make, I think, our situation unfortunately so unique that I tend to congratulate our elder colleague on the fact that most probably he will leave this planet earlier than we. <laughs> Other questions? I'll just make a comment about the chain of thoughts that Paul Ray um, started with. I, I think one way of understanding the international uh, situation with liberal democracies is that the democracy part has has um, outweighed the constitutional liberal 
part. All, all of these are populist movements in some way, whether it's Brexit or it's, which is wrecking the party system in Britain or it's Orban or it's Narendra Modi. I mean, India, India is a consolidated liberal democracy, but they've become more and more populist uh, with each passing decade in a way. So I think that, that has happened in the United States as well. Uh, um, we, we have this one massive electoral prize, the presidency, and, and that shapes elections for all the other offices. But as, as Alan said, we, we adopted an anti-constitutional <laughs> principle of primary uh, uh, elections so that every office, president, senate, offices that were not designed to be uh, democratically elected, we, we now elect them um, in that way. So I think that that's a I think that's a new uh, dimension of challenge. And again, I think Tocqueville anticipates it that that the spirit of liberty and the spirit of religion both are rooted in some metaphysical principles of of truth, and we can debate them and argue them. And uh, but. But democracy comes to sweep away and replace those, and so you get pop, you get uh, populism. And he anticipated it could be a populism that produces authoritarianism. Let me get one uh, question in. So the name James Madison hasn't been mentioned, I, I think, uh, in this panel. So I just felt the need to mention him. Uh, <laughs> but maybe pose a Madisonian question, which is um, to this panel in particular. I think it'd be interesting. Uh, are there any constitutional reforms? that you think would help our current situation? Well, I, I just want to say as a general category, when we're, uh, when we're talking about the Madisonian Constitution, this goes back to the first question of this. I, I do want to introduce this. I mean, this is a constitution that wasn't developed to incorporate political parties at all. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't conceived with the idea of political parties as a legitimate opposition uh, that developed uh, and it was integrated into the constitution. It's been so piecemeal and uh, over, it's been taking on so many different forms over so, many, so long that unwinding the way our system uh, uh, links to the Constitution is, is a really complex endeavor, and I don't know of anyone who's written that book comprehensively, an American political development book. I, I wouldn't call the primary system anti-constitutional. I'd call it a-constitutional because I would like to have that category of analysis for uh, things like political parties and any number of different things that, uh, that are integral to our political system that you can't uh, fully explain uh, obviously, just reading the Constitution. We need to take the Constitution is very important, uh, obviously, but it's not uh, the only vehicle for delivering American democracy. And the way in which the Constitution operates is fundamentally changed by the introduction of political parties. The Electoral College is fundamentally changed. Uh, the separation of power scheme is fundamentally changed. Um, the, the very election of candidates. Uh, what, you know, we, we moved from a uh, individualistic, reputational, driven, uh, focused in elections to a political party as the identifying uh, signature of, uh, of what someone believes rather than a characterological uh, judgment about an individual inside a large electoral district to, uh, to think about James Madison. Um, the Madisonian uh, um, thing that I would like to see adopted is actually a principle from Madison, not a single um, 
reform. Madison has all of these different interesting things he lost that he would, you know, that we could put on the table here. But I'd like to see the principle that no man is a judge and should be a judge in his own cause adopted as a uh, as a, as a universal principle of thing or as a uh, uh, as a way of thinking about uh, constitutional forms. That's from the tenth federal paper, David. You 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 get great consternation right now. Like where the hell are you getting it from? From Madison. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that's uh, that, I, I, my scholarship is on how, uh, the ubiquity of the idea of uh, no man is a judge in his own cause in uh, um, in Madison's political thought and the many manifestations it takes. And uh, I mean, I see one of the fundamental problems of the regulatory system right now is as capture and uh, uh, as judgment by regulators of the very, of, of industries of the very things they're supposed to be regulating. And that kind of a, an example can be traced uh, in private and public affairs uh, with, with, a, with a, a lot of uh, robustness, we put it that way. Um, that's a very, uh, I think it's a very real problem. I think that Madison's right about how his comment is it biased your judgment to be a, a judge in your own cause and may corrupt your integrity. And uh, I think both of those things are true, actually. Any other thoughts on the constitutional reform? Uh, i make a comment or two. Um, it seems to me bringing Madison into the conversation is a good idea. I mean, he's, you know, he's an astute political scientist. I think we can all agree to that. Um, and one of the things that Madison has been appealed to in, in my own life, not in my career so much, but in my, when I was a student, and I was a student of uh, mostly with Amer for American things of Herbert Storing, who some of you know, and those of you who don't, you're, you should be sorry you didn't. Um, he was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And one of his lessons that he always emphasized, and he, in this, looked to Madison, um, that the cur in political, current political science and in current political thinking, the answer to almost every question is more democracy. And Storing actually wanted to say, one of the things we can learn from the founding is that more democracy isn't always the right answer, that there are other things, counter-democracy things that are also good to know. And, but then the interesting thing that I, I think is also buried there in that wealth of Madison <laughs> material is that sometimes more democracy is the right answer and that we need to learn how to distinguish which is which. And so that's a hard thing because it's not like a formula. There's some formula somewhere where you can figure out just how much democracy you need and how much counter-democracy. But I think having a frame of mind which is open to the idea that sometimes democracy is the right answer and sometimes it isn't uh, is help, would be very helpful, just not so much a proposal. So in this line, of course, many Trump-like issues come up. Like I think one of the things that needs to be controlled and this goes back to my Lockeanism, I suppose, is we need to control the rules about delegation of power. That Locke is very, Locke is very strong, the founders were quite strong. Power, executive power, exec, legislators, oh, I'll get it straight. Legislative power should not just be uh, promiscuously delegated to anybody. It's a power that belongs to the legislature and behind the legislature to the people. And so I'd say, yeah, let's control delegation of power. That would be a good thing to do. Um, that we should, there shouldn't be an attitude 
that I see voiced by many, many, many people by William Barr, mostly. He's voicing this the most of anybody out there. That the executive is a crucial institution in our government. Yes, it is. But that doesn't mean that we should forget what the founders also remembered, that the executive is a dangerous and problematic institution. And so we shouldn't give the presidency the benefit of the doubt every time the issue comes up. Um, and so it's changes at that level that I think could be useful to us. I'm not particular. I'm in general dubious about constitutional amendments because the very people who benefit from the arrangements that we now have are the people who will make the decision about whether we should change those arrangements. Normally, they don't favor change in that circumstance. So. Uh, please join me in thanking our panelists.